Well, hello, and welcome to the 7th Tim Masso Podcast. I'm so happy to have you with me. As you ride along today, remember to check out timmasso.com, where we also have our articles in addition to these podcasts. And of course, check my channels, Watchbox Reviews and Tim Masso on Instagram. All the best places to catch my watch reviews in one minute or five to seven minute formats. So today I'm going to talk about watches from the 1990s that are excellent targets for collectors. Now, all these watches right now represent value ranging from almost discovered to distant prospects. So I'm going to start with a couple of watches that are, shall we say, semi-discovered, but still good value. And then I'll work into maybe the more esoteric stuff. Okay, so the surprise of the episode is that a lot of the best watches to buy from the 1990s come from Richemont companies. And in the case of IWC, the firm wasn't actually a Richemont company until the very end of the decade as JLC, Alango Unzona, and IWC were purchased by Richemont in 2000. So what a lot of people don't realize about IWC is that its most recognizable modern dress watch, the Portuguese or Portugueser, depending on whether you prefer English or German, was actually a very rare watch. Though recognizable and well-known among collectors, such as the collector scene was prior to the 90s, nevertheless, from 1939 to roughly 1993, at most 600 IWC Portuguese reference 325s were made. It was not a common watch. A giant and regarded as a bit of a monstrosity on its launch in 1939, it was considered the first true purpose-built oversized wristwatch, and the reason was clear. The Portuguese importers of IWC wanted a wristwatch that was as accurate as a pocket watch, and in 1939, the only way to do that was to use a pocket watch movement. And so that's exactly what happened in the early days of the Portugueser. The watch wasn't big for the sake of fashion. The watch was big because there was a pocket watch caliber inside of it. Now, fast forward to 1993, and IWC is celebrating its 125th anniversary. They're looking to do something special. Having already launched their first Grand Complication wristwatch in 1990, and rolled out the Destrio Scafusia, the ultimate IWC at the time, there was a need for something that was not merely complicated and grand, but iconic of the brand. And a pocket watch, though IWC continued to make them, was not going to suit the purpose. Nor was the giant Portofino, which was always a bit of an oddity. A collector favorite, yes, but not the kind of comeback watch that a mechanical watchmaking luxury brand wanted to launch entering the 90s. So in 1993, IWC looked at its back catalog and decided that the rarely built but famous Portugueser was the right choice. And so we saw the first modern IWC Portuguese built, and that was the reference 5441. At 42 millimeters, it was bigger than the roughly 39.5 millimeter reference 325 that came before, but not so much larger that it seemed like a pander to tastes or an aberration. It was pretty dead on. At 42 millimeters, it was also properly sized for an IWC pocket watch caliber and an evolution of the historic caliber 98 was chosen. So caliber 9828 
went into the reference 5441. Now, reference 5441 was very true to history. Leaf hands, small seconds at six o'clock, no date, vertically aligned Arabic numerals, and then outboard a railroad track encircling it all with an IWC International Watch Co. vintage style logo. It was a really good looking watch. And the 5441 was built in 1,000 pieces in steel, 500 in rose gold, and 250 in platinum. It was built with a correct and historically representative plexiglass crystal. This was a very faithful effort. The finish was like that rarely seen on any IWC watch. The anglage was real. The Cote de Genève were rich, gradiated, and luminous. There were golden chatons for the pivot jewels and individual finger bridges for the terminal end of the drivetrain, the fourth wheel, and the escape wheel. The balance was enormous. It was five-position adjusted, overcoil hairspring, black-polished swan's neck fine adjustment mechanism. It did IWC Heritage proud, and the original Portugueser was never this beautiful. So again, 1,000 in steel, 500 in rose gold, and 250 in platinum. So the watch today, if you're looking to find one, is not cheap, but worth what you pay for it. In a world where the standard IWC Portuguese or automatic now costs close to the teens in steel, paying $16,000, $17,000 for a reference 5441 in steel is a solid investment. Original crystal, original case, original dial, unpolished, you know, maybe you're talking seventeen to 18000 but at that point, you're getting full box and papers. You're getting the original bill of sale. You're getting a watch that's never been touched by the refinisher's wheel. If you want to step up, you will see between about 17000 and uh, 21000 the 500-piece rose gold model. And if you want to shoot the moon and you want to try to buy the platinum model, figure between twenty-five dollars and $30,000. Now, you need to look at these prices as fully depreciated floors on value. It's not going to lose any more value. And that's been true for a while. These have been rising subtly to the point where I can say each one is worth about 15 to 20% more right now than it was when I first got into the watch industry back in 2013. I was with Watchbox, then Watch You Want in 2014. And some of the first watches I sold via video were these 5441s. So I've seen them close up, and I was impressed then as I am now at just how nicely they're made. These are the best Portugueseers for a combination of value, historical importance, rarity, and outright execution. They are among the most desirable unless you're going to get a verified factory certificate, factory serviced reference 325 Portugueser. Okay, IWC. A lot to love in the 90s. There was the first Portuguese minute repeater in 1995, but we've already talked about the Portuguese. So let's talk about something that was mentioned briefly and which to me represents a true grail watch. And, and I don't say that often of IWC pieces, but this is a personal grail and it is the reference 3770 Grand Complication. It was a best of everything watch launched in 1990 to herald IWC's reemergence into the 1990s as a luxury mechanical watchmaker, committing, as it were, to mechanical watches. Well, let's start with the design. The design was by Hanno Bircher, who designed everything from the 1980s Da Vinci to the early 1980s giant Portofino to some of the IWC dress watches of the period, 
up to and including the Jubilee Collection. So Bircher was prolific for IWC, including his designs for pocket watches, such as the Ingenieur pocket watch during the 1980s. He designed the Grand Complication in a wearable 42 millimeter size, and that's what sets this watch apart, aside from price, but sets this watch apart from modern Grand Complications. It was possible to do all of that, a chronograph, a moon face, automatic winding, a minute repeater, and a Kurt Klaus mechanically programmed perpetual calendar in a 42 millimeter case. So you can wear this watch without being bombastic, obnoxious, or peacocking. Now, it's also a wonderful timepiece because you get Bircher's design, you get Kurt Klaus's perpetual calendar system, which is mechanically programmed and adjustable through the crown, one-point adjustment. You can never create an imaginary day, date, month, leap year, year, and moon phase combo because it's all programmed through the year 2100. Klaus is a legend at IWC. He should be regarded on par with modern masters like Vianney Halter, Philippe Dufour, F.P. Jorn, and Kerry Voudelainen. But because he worked in a different era, a lot of his best work is regarded, but perhaps not venerated the way it should be. But he designed the perpetual calendar system for this watch, and for good measure, IWC added an aventurine glass moon phase that is just delectable to the eye. Now, it continued because a pre-Audemars Piguet, Renault et Papy, actually designed the minute repeater system. Their specialty was high complications, especially chiming watches, and prior to their full acquisition by AP in 1992, they actually designed the minute repeating module for the 3770 Grand Complication. So you're getting the impression already that with a Bircher design, a Klaus perpetual calendar, a Renoi Papi minute repeater, this is an impressive almost anthology of Switzerland's best. Well, it gets better because the whole thing was built on a modified Valjoux 7750, and I consider that to be an asset because it is one of the all-time great chronograph calibers, and it completes the picture here because rather than a finicky, thin, and delicate base caliber, you get a tank-tough automatic that will be serviceable forever. The combined movement was known as the 79091. And just to give you an idea of how modified it was, everything from the balance to the hairspring, uh, the train wheels was done in-house by IWC. They used only the bridges and plates of the basic 7750. Everything was adjusted to the same level as a chronometer. And whereas a value 7750 in modern spec has 25 joules, the 79091 movement had 75 joules. Not only did IWC completely rebuild and regulate the base caliber, they added 50 joules to the modified movement. This is their own movement. Now you have your choices, because this watch was made in 50 examples per metal per year between 1990 and 2010, uh, when the design changed and it became part of the Portuguese family. The hands changed, there was a slight aesthetic refinement in 2003, but for the most part, it was the same watch. I say go whole hog, get platinum. Now, if you want to buy one, I recommend you go platinum in the black dial because that is the best investment potential. Second best would be to get the all the dials were either metallic or lacquered. Get the white lacquered dial. That is your second best bet. Prices start at $70,000. Full box papers and accessories in platinum. You're probably looking at about eighty-five dollars to $90,000. 
and you're looking at about the same price for rose gold. Oddly, there's not really a big price delta. Rose gold with the anthracite or ardoise nickel anthracite sunburst dial, it's a metallic. That's a really desirable piece. So think entry level, 70 is where the prices start for a naked watch. Think about $80,000 to 90 for a good watch with documentation. And then for the absolute best, which I consider to be the platinum watch with the black dial, think 90 to 95,000. So that's where you're going to be standing. And this is a watch that's going nowhere but up. Not soon in all likelihood, but Kurt Klaus is getting up there and he's not going to be around forever. And eventually there's going to be a reconsideration of his role. He was a rock star watchmaker in the eighties before being a rock star watchmaker was cool. That, and I think the value available in pre Richemont IWC from the eighties and the nineties is going to catch some wind in its sails sooner rather than later. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be a front page article on Hodinkee. Maybe William Messina will take a liking to these. But someday people are going to realize what they meant to watchmaking in the 90s and how impressive the collection of fathers to this grand complication looks when you lay it all out in one place. And I will own this watch and I will own it in platinum with the black dial. Now, let's talk about one of the greats in the industry. Let's talk about Patek Philippe. This was an interesting era for Patek because Patek witnessed a resurgence in the 1980s as first the vintage watch scene, which was obsessed with pocket watches back then, uh, began to recall the great complicated Patek pocket watches of the first half of the 20th century. And if you were a watch collector on the vintage scene in the early 1980s, you wanted Patek Philippe and you wanted a pocket watch. No one was interested in wristwatches back then on the vintage scene, no one. Everyone wanted pocket watches and Patek was the king of the scene. Uh, watches like the Graves Complication, the James Ward Packard watches, uh, they were the grail watches on the vintage scene of their day. They were the watches that would headline an auction and front the auction catalog. But Patek also witnessed a resurgence due to uncanny and effective advertising during the 1980s, and uh, they, they had probably the best mass market advertising plan of anyone in truly haute de gamme horology. So watches like first the 3520 and then the 3919 became a phenomenon. By the 1990s, you were beginning to see collector interest in Patek wristwatches, as well as Patek Philippe's re-entry into markets where it had been long absent, like Russia and China. And it produced some unusual designs. Uh, they were willing to try unusual things like the Russian watch, the Patek Philippe sculpture, the, uh, the 5091, which might be a, a watch that's too avant-garde even for our times, as it was basically a 36 millimeter Fabergé egg on your wrist, although its design was prescient and it presaged the later Cartier Ballon Bleu, which became a blockbuster in the 2000s. Now, the Patek watch from the 90s that I think you need to look at because it's unusual, but it's not so weird that we have to talk about 20, 30-year horizons for collectability. I'm talking about the Patek Philippe Neptune. Now, if I told you that there is a salmon dial, tritium dial, full integrated bracelet, stainless steel Patek Philippe vintage sports watch, and it's available for $15,000, a lot of folks would say, you're pulling my leg. Either that or it must be stolen. No, I'm not talking about the black market. I'm talking about the Neptune family launched in 1996. And the earliest versions are the best ones to own. 
integrated bracelet, crown guard structure, engine-turned bezel, and the look of the watch, because it's more of a cushion case than a round case, because of the broad machine bezel, because of the crown guard structure, it reads as larger than its 36.5 millimeter size. It really does read like a 38, which means it has a nice modern size. And by that, I mean, we've stepped down a little bit from the 2000 craze for big watches. And now we sort of like that 37 to 38 millimeter men's watch. This is right there aesthetically. With the salmon dial, the leaf hands, the Roman numerals, and the tritium fade, it does not get any better. These are genuinely gorgeous watches. They'll bring a tear to your eye if you can just open your mind to the idea of a little bit of a dated 90s aesthetic. The bracelet is very dressy, and I make no bones about that. It's a combination of alternating polished and grooved links, not satin, but machined and grooved, and it's a very different look. I'm not gonna call it an acquired taste, though, because there is a genuine grace to this watch with very few straight lines, a lot of compound sinuous and sensuous curves. This is a timepiece whose time has come. I'm going to make you a promise. At $15,000, you will never lose money on one of these. I can see the market rising as people are still going crazy for older Nautilus and Aquanaut models. And as handsome as this piece is, and as rare as it is, only built in a few hundred pieces per year, I think the time for the Neptune is now. And I think the direction is up. If you like complications, there's also the reference 5085, 5081A is the standard reference. The 5085-1A is identical mechanically to the Nautilus uh, 5712 and 3712. It is a moon phase, power reserve, and radial date caliber 240 micro rotor. So consider that one. If you want to pay a bit more money, you're going to look at about twenty-three dollars to $27,000 for a well-documented, unpolished reference 5085 Neptune moon phase power reserve. Okay, Vacheron Constantin, the same year the Neptune came out, Vacheron decided to get back into the sports watch market in earnest. And after the somewhat idiosyncratic and undoubtedly dated Fideus collection, Vacheron decided to look further back and draw from the best of its history in the sports watch segment, which was York Heisick's 1977 Vacheron Constantin 222 sports watch. About 36.5 millimeters stainless steel and powered by the caliber 1120, the same movement which in Patek and AP guys powered the Royal Oak and the Nautilus Jumbo, the 222 is a classic in its own right, rarely built in just over 700 examples in all metals. The 222 lent its primary design language, cushion case, thin profile, stacked bezel, integrated bracelet to the 1996 Overseas. Now, the Overseas was inspired by the 222, which was in its day also inspired by the Jumbo Ingenieur, the Nautilus, the Royal Oak, the Laureato. But the Overseas was more of an original work than the 222 was. This looked a lot less like the Royal Oak and the Nautilus of its time. Reference 42042 was the basic Overseas Automatic in 1996, and it was designed by an independent watch contractor best known for his, his work with Coram and Cartier, uh, Dino Modolo. And it was designed by him and Vincent Kaufman in cooperation. Now, Kaufman was a Vacheron employee who would later become the company's first in-house director of their first in-house style department. So he's also an historically important figure in Vacheron history. The watch was 37 millimeters in diameter and about 8.4 millimeters thick, which meant for an ultra-thin 150 meter 
automatic winding sports watch, it really did fit the bill. It was about as thin as the Royal Oak Jumbo and, and the Nautilus of, of that time. Uh, it's also considerably thinner by about two to three millimeters than today's overseas self-winding. So this is a very flat, thin, fine, and handsome watch. At 37 millimeters, it's, it's bigger both in measurement and in appearance than a standard 36. It looks more like as with the Neptune, about a 38 on the wrist. So the size is nice. It's not too petite, nor is it too delicate in appearance, as it has that butch integrated bracelet profile that makes it look like a continuous band and a larger mass of metal. What I really like is that you have a couple of dial options. There was a military style dial with vertically arrayed and fully loomed Arabic numerals. That one was black. A sunburst metallic salmon dial, a blue sunburst metallic dial, and a silver metallic dial. So you have a couple of different choices and you have your choice of either gold or stainless steel. Without a doubt, the one to get is stainless steel. Yellow gold is available, but in my opinion, for between $13,000 and about $19,000, steel is the way to go. Now, if you want to ask why is there such a big gap, it's because uh, there are Definitely variations in completeness, in refinishing, you want unrefinished, and in desirability of the dials. Uh, a silver dial that's been refinished without box and papers is probably about a $12,500 watch, whereas a salmon dial with original factory tritium, unrefinished, fully intact box set, uh, you know, that is going to be a watch that's going to bring about $19,000. And the nice thing is you're getting real tritium. You're not getting Fotina. On the salmon dial, that tritium fade is really handsome. It looks apropos. It's explosively gorgeous because you have the bright shine of the sunburst salmon dial from decades before that was cool. And you've got the lovely fade of the hands and the indices. It also, one thing I love about this generation of um, overseas is that it's got the vaulted Vacheron logo. So as with Alango Unzona, there's sort of a vaulted and curved Vacheron logo across the top of the dial. It's not straight across the dial. It gives the watch a little bit of a vintage cool vibe. The crown guard structure is minimal. The bezel is low cut. And ultimately it has probably the most elaborate bracelet design of any overseas ever, as there were multiple facets, polished satin, two deep channel grooves down the center of the bracelet. And the clasp was both a clamshell lock and a trigger release. It was mirror polished on its underside. To say the bracelet was a little bit overdone from a finishing and construction standpoint is only to honor those who created this watch to impress. Now, inside the case, depending on whether you get reference 42040 or the subsequent modified reference 42042, you're going to find either caliber 1310 or 1311. Let me explain. Both of them are the only ever chronometer certified overseas movements ever offered, and they are both based on a Gerard Perigo 3000 series automatic hacking quickset COSC automatic 46 hour power reserve. They're protected down to 150 meters by a screw down crown. So this is a real swimmable watch. The 1311 is only different 
from the 1310 because Vacheron made some changes to make the movement a little bit more durable and suited to a sports watch. It got a little bit thicker and the winding system was somewhat reinforced. That is the only change. So if you're wondering why the change in watch reference and movement reference, that's it right there. And I really do think that the chronometer certification puts a feather in the cap of this generation of the overseas that sets it apart from every Royal Oak and every Nautilus ever built, as well as every overseas that came after, because it was never again chronometer certified. No Nautilus, no Royal Oak, no Aquanaut has ever been COSC certified. This first generation overseas definitely was. As I said, with the other models we've discussed, prices have bottomed out and they're not going to get any lower. Buy one of these in good condition. and In fact, buy a great one. Buy an untouched full set tritium dial, salmon dial, unrefinished museum piece overseas auto, put it in the box. Get another one with the military dial, which is my favorite aesthetically, and wear that one. Trust me, in 10 years, you'll wish you bought three. Now let's talk a little bit about another model that turned out to be unexpectedly influential, but in its day was a little bit obscure just because back in 1991, there wasn't a real international watch collector scene. A few very niche enthusiasts knew about the luxury watch scene, and very few of them knew that there were dedicated publications that came out that would allow you to read about news in the watch industry and new model releases. And in general, it happened just, well, once a year. 1991 was also the first year for SIHH, so these were early days for spreading the word about new models, and 91 was the year Audemars Piguet launched the Star Wheel. 36 millimeters and powered by a JLC 889 base movement, it came out back when Vacheron was still separate from Richemont. Patek Philippe was just emerging from its 1980s infatuation with tiny watches and pocket watches, and AP was re-emerging as a force in luxury watchmaking after posting a couple of impressive and famous firsts in the 80s, such as the first automatic tourbillon wristwatch. But the 1991 Star Wheel took it to the next level. The JLC movement on the back, and JLC was 40% owned by Audemars Piguet back then. So in some ways, this was sort of an in-house caliber. The 889 powered a wandering hours complication. This system was drawn from late Renaissance clocks that used the wandering hours uh, complication, a system whereby digital representation of time would wander across the face of the clock. Well, Audemars Piguet found a way to miniaturize it in a 36 millimeter yellow gold or platinum case. And they created little sapphire discs, each of which, there were three discs, each of which featured four Arabic numerals. So you had your 12 hours right there. There was a tri-spoke assembly that worked like a carousel at the center of the dial. And underneath the little sapphire discs with their four numerals in triplicate, you had a system of springs and pawls, and that was the basis for the name Star Wheel. These little sprung pawls in star form were responsible for rotating the sapphires and aligning the numeral of the current hour with a curved scale that read from zero to 60 minutes. And as the previous hour departed the scale, at the opposite end, the little sapphire disc by virtue of spring and star wheel, would rotate the next numeral for the subsequent hour into position, and then it would wander 
across the scale. So you would read the hour next to the minute in digital form. And the entire carousel operation was visible on the dial side, making it one of the very first luxury watches ever to feature a dial side fully exposed movement, or at least the store wheel complication was fully exposed. Now, there were a couple of variations. As I mentioned, you could get it in yellow gold, or you could get it in platinum. You could get it with a standard uh, guilloche rose lathe, grand doge, or barleycorn pattern, or you could get it fully engraved with banknote scrolling created by a burin and basically a chiseling artist who would engrave the dial the way Longa engraves balance cock components. Uh, you could get the watch with a full bracelet, or you could get it on a strap. It was a breakthrough piece, and only six years later, Erwerk, founded by Felix Baumgartner and Martin Fry in Geneva, launched their first UR101 and UR102, the, the Sputnik and the Millennium Falcon. And the signature of these watches was a digital time display by wandering hours. It was literally the same system Audemars Piguet had launched with a small mechanical difference using a Maltese cross rather than a star wheel. But Audemars Piguet created that display in the wristwatch era for a wristwatch format. And the ultimate homage was that Erwerk, one of the original independent horology houses from its very earliest model, decided to make that its signature. Later on, Vacheron would launch a series of metier uh, d'art pieces uh, from the Les Arostiers to the Sputnik uh, and, and Les Masques. Well, Le Masque technically was not one of these. Le Masque was a different display. But Vacheron would launch a series of satellite wandering hours displays, of which the Sputnik, made in 10 pieces for the Russian market, was my favorite. But, but these were absolutely fantastic takes on the star wheel concept, and latterly, Gorilla launched the world's most affordable star wheel. And if you've seen the Gorilla Fastback, it's re received... Uh, consecutive GPHG nominations in 2019 and 2020. Uh, check, it, check out what Octavio Garcia, formerly of Audemars Piguet, is doing with Gorilla and the Fastback models. But uh, it is a star wheel display. And the star wheel, or the Ur star wheel, I guess we could call it, from 1991, today is, is a surprisingly accessible watch. You can get one in the teens, but for the most part, they now trade in the 20s. These are no longer cheap, I should mention. Uh, they're no longer cheap, but they're also not crazy. When you look at what people pay for Royal Oak Jumbos for the 20th anniversary 14802 Royal Oak Jubilee from 1992, uh, they pay crazy money for these watches. And I think alongside the Tourbillon Automatique from the 80s, the reference 25720 Star Wheel is an AP that has a lot of headroom to move up. And I think the 90s is the next frontier in vintage watches. I'm giving you all of this guidance because I don't think the collector market and certainly the speculation side of the collector market hasn't found these watches. You're a collector, a passionate enthusiast. You love these things. That's why you're listening. And so am I. And I want these watches to find homes that appreciate them for what they are. As with vintage cars, where I'm always trying to predict the next thing to go nuts on the collector market and gain value, I'm not doing it because I want to make money. If I wanted to make money, I'd invest in commodities or stocks or real estate. I'm trying to find out what's going to go next nuts 
because I want to buy it before I'm priced out of the market. And I want you to do the same. Get the watch because you love it before people start doing stupid things with the pricing on Chrono and eBay and sales sites. Buy them because you'll love them and because tomorrow you might not be able to. Guys, thanks so much. Um, reach out to me, Monday Mailbag at thewatchbox.com, so I can take your suggestions for future podcasts. Monday Mailbag at thewatchbox.com. Also, I've got some collaborative interview episodes coming up. We're going to be doing interviews with folks from within the industry, uh, like Jason Wilbur, designer of the Devon Tread, and Max Booser, founder of MBNF. All that is on deck, and you'll find it right here on the Tim Masso podcast on timmasso.com. Thanks so much. Time out, Tim out, and thanks for logging on.